This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for your support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 192. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. When you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now, quick announcement. Due to popular demand, Paul Andrioli from Small Cap Discoveries and ourselves here at SNN Network are teaming up again to highlight our neighbors to the north, Canada. On December 7th through 9th, 2021, we'll be hosting the SNN Network Canada virtual event. In the last five to 10 years, small micro and nano cap investors have been finding value accretive opportunities with companies that are listed on the TSX, TSX Venture, CSE, and even the NEO. So we decided to team up again so that we can host an event that encapsulates all these opportunities that are available on these exchanges. You can expect three days of keynotes, educational panels, company presentations, and one-on-one meetings. To register, please go to canada.snn.network and please click the register button. We look forward to seeing you all there. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Rick Rule. I've known Rick for my entire career in financial media. And whenever I have questions about what is happening in precious metals, natural resources, mining, he's the guy. Since I last spoke to Rick, he has stepped down as CEO at Sprout U.S. Holdings and has a little more time to do what he loves, investing and speculating. I asked Rick to join me on the pod because I just finished doing 100 interviews for the Precious Metal Summit Beaver Creek, in my opinion, the best event in the precious metal space. And I had to get his opinion on some of what I heard from the management teams there. In addition, we hadn't talked since the pandemic hit in early 2020, so I wanted to hear his takes on the silver short squeeze, Reddit investing, how all of this has affected precious metals, and of course, which has been taking up all the headlines of late, uranium. Thank you again for tuning into episode 192 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Rick Rule. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And uh, I have a returning guest for you today because I've just done over 100 CEO interviews for uh, a mining event in the last uh, month and change. And there's been some pretty interesting trends that that I saw, you know, uh, from this year versus last year. And I also haven't spoken to my guest today in a while, and a lot has changed in, in his career as well. So I just this was a long overdue catch up. So I'm really excited to introduce today investor and speculator, the Rick Rule. Rick, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me back. I always enjoy these sessions. 
Yeah, same here. Well, I, I wanted to start by saying congratulations. You know, you just announced retirement in the last, I think it was about in the last month, month and a half or so. Um, so uh, I wanted to wish you congratulations. How was it? Well, thank you. You know, retirement for me is probably different than it is for other people. I would describe it more as a redirection than a retirement. I've given up any regulated function, which is to say I've given up my securities licenses and I've given up managerial functions. I still serve on the board of directors of Sprott. Uh, I think I'm still their largest shareholder, probably still their largest private client. So I'm very involved in that business, but I don't run that business and I'm no longer regulated. So uh, I would describe it uh, as slowing down, certainly, but probably more a redirection than a retirement. I got you. So, I mean, so what have you been filling some of the time with right now? I mean, what, what I know you're in San Diego, so I know you're enjoying that. Well, I um, frankly... Uh, have a bit more time for securities analysis, not being involved in running a business. One of the frustrating things that's brought was I got into the business to do securities analysis. Uh, and as the business became more successful, I spent more time running the business and less time doing what I enjoyed. So like yourself, I've been doing a lot of public company interviews, although unlike yourself, not for the benefit of the world at large, uh, but rather for my own benefit, uh, which I've been enjoying, frankly. That's a lot of fun. I mean, look, I, I, I think I can speak for everybody who follows natural resources and, and basic materials that, you know, we hope to see some of that one day, you know, that's for sure. You will. I've started my own channel, Rule Investment Media, uh, and I'm not sure I'm going to do what I'm going to do with it when I grow up. But certainly one of the features on there will be a podcast called Talking My Book, where I interview in long form uh CEOs of companies that I've invested in, uh, the sort of due diligence process that would normally take place between an investor and a public company. But in this case, uh, sharing, if I can, the benefit of 45 years of learning how to conduct these interviews with anybody who wants to listen. I cannot wait to be the first subscriber on that, if, uh, if, you, don't, if you don't mind. Um, I'm all over it. It, well, especially in mining. I mean, you're the guy when listen, you're my guy when I go when I'm, when it comes to mining. So I mean, uh, I can't wait to hear it. So all right, let's cut to the chase. You know, we caught up. This is good. You know, I'm I'm glad to see you're doing well. You know, but now you, now to the to the meat and potatoes. At the twenty, right. I, I did over a hundred CEO interviews, not just this year, but also last year at the Precious Metal Summit Beaver Creek, um, and I, one trend I kind of noticed that was interesting is that in 2020. Most companies were saying near-term production, right? We're, we're right there, you know, a couple of things need to fall into place and we're ready to go. And I'd say this year, the number one trend, we're in production. Um, a lot of companies are saying either first pour, now they're at the commercial stage. So I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what has happened in the natural resource, in the junior natural resources space in the last 12 to 18 months that can explain some of these, these are pretty big catalysts for a lot of these companies. I think uh, three things. The first is that the better people in the industry were better beaver, were, you know, beavering away, building businesses for the last 10 years when the industry was in doldrums and nobody noticed that. Uh, so like in everyone's career, these people spent 10 years preparing to be overnight successes. Uh, in other words, it didn't really happen over the last 12 to 18 months. It's just that it bore fruit. The second thing was that to, uh, commodity prices are uniformly across the board higher than they were three or four years ago. If you tried to put a gold project in production at $1,100 gold, it's more challenging than it is at $1,750 or $1,800 gold. 
Similarly, if you were trying to, uh, in the COVID area, era, put a copper mine in production at $2.25 a pound, it's a challenge. At $4 a pound, it's much less of a challenge. The third thing is that uh, equity capital markets for uh, mineral businesses have become much more open and much more liquid in the last two years. Let's face it, to build a, a medium-sized mine is a three, four, five hundred million dollar undertaking. And if you don't have access to a third of that by way of equity, which is to say, if you don't have access to a, a hundred to two hundred million dollars worth of equity, you can't build a mine. Uh, equity capital markets with regards to mine development have really, really, really opened up. So these three things, that is the fact that people spent a decade uh, preparing for today, that commodity prices have suddenly become permissive and that capital markets have been open, has resulted, as you have noted, in a flood of mine openings, which is wonderful. Absolutely. I mean, one one thing that I, a couple of CEOs even told me also was back you know, when the pandemic started, um, a lot of these companies said, you know what, we don't know what's going to happen in the next 12 to 18 months or two years from now in terms of things opening up, even being able to go visit some of their mine sites, which are you know all over the world. Um, so a lot of them did financings at steeper discounts because they're like, all right, we want to make sure we have cash so that just in case things were not able to do certain things, we'll be set ready to go at least for the next couple of years. I mean, did that have anything to do with it as well, where like maybe there's just extra, extra cash on hand in order to take some things to the next level? The willingness to take cash in circumstances where somebody might not have done so otherwise may well have had something to do with it. Uh, the industry has always had a, a just-in-time attitude with regards to equity, which most of the time has been a mistake, um, not a virtue. But, I, you know, it's it, it's really difficult to overlook the incredibly positive impact that rising commodity prices and rising capital availability has had. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when you think about that, because I, 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 I mean, look, I'm just more of an outsider, quite frankly, looking in. Yeah, I've been talking to you for years and interviewing these folks for years, but I'm not. I don't have access to some of what is talked about on, you know, on Bay Street or on House Street in many respects. But I mean, what's what What kind of was the vibe during that time? And then now, is it has it really just all been driven more or less by the stabilization of these higher commodity prices and just like, oh, it didn't go down lower. Great, let's go. Well, that certainly helps. Uh, the other thing is that a, a certain class of investor, very large institutional investors, came to understand three or four years ago that the pendulum was shifting towards natural resources, that they were cheap. Uh, my former employer, Sprott, as an example, has raised well in excess of a billion dollars from the largest institutional investors in the world uh, for uh, a fund which provides construction and project finance uh, for mining companies. These are you know, sovereign wealth funds, university endowments, uh, things like that. There was capital circling the industry going back 10 years ago. But that capital came home to roost. Uh, was the catalyst higher commodity prices to get them to write the checks? Uh, was it uh, the very handsome returns on capital employed that Sprott, existed, that, that Sprott exhibited pardon me, during the bear market uh, that let these investors know that bull markets or bear markets, there's money to be made in resource development? I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that there has been 
uh, heightened interest from all forms of investor, uh, all the way from the sort of Reddit silver squeeze crowd, uh, which is to say the newer retail investment, all the way up to the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world. Uh, and, and that capital, I guess, has been given permission by commodity prices that are now high enough to incent new high-quality production. So I want to, uh, don't worry, you, you said a couple of things and don't worry, we're going to go down those rabbit holes. But one, one other thing to follow up on here as well is, you know, you talked about the quality of some of these projects. I mean, are we still talking that a lot of the these projects that are coming online that are now in production, I mean, are you, is it more quality or is it now just because? It's mixed, I would say. Uh, yeah. Sometimes very good promoters can put a marginal project in production, which is too bad, but that's the way the world. Uh, we've been seeing everything. We've been seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, but the truth is that with higher commodity prices and more capital availability, a lot of stuff is getting financed. What's merciful, I suspect, is that a 10-year bear market uh, weeded out many of the marginal managers who in the past would have been tempted to put marginal uh, projects uh, into production. Uh, similarly, the investment banks who funded so much of the silliness that happened in the decade 2000 to 2010 uh, ha have been, let's say, chastened. Uh, whether or not they stay wise is a different question. But for now, they're much less inclined to make the same mistakes that they would have made in 2006 or 2007. And that's a good thing. Absolutely. So, I mean, what are, yeah, listen, there's going to be a number of resource investors that are going to be listening to this right now. And they all want to hear from, from you, you know, what, what right now, I mean, what are some of the things that you, that investors should understand about some of the projects that are out there? How do you, how do you discern from the quality, from the crap? I mean, you know, what, what are some things you're looking for? Well, that's a very long discussion. Uh, Good. Let's go. This is a podcast for me. Let's go. We got an hour. It's a very long discussion. Uh, I, I would say, uh, First of all, read the bankable feasibility study. Look at the assumptions that go into the bankable feasibility study. What commodity price assumptions do they use? Do you believe yourself that commodity prices will hold at the levels that they're suggesting uh, uh, will occur? If uh, a copper project is going into production and they used a $3 copper price in their bankable feasibility study, those are more conservative assumptions than a $4 price. This $4 price is fairly recent. Who knows if it's going to hold? Uh, look, too, at the construction cost estimates and try and anticipate by reading other companies' annual reports whether those construction and operating costs are consistent with the experience that other operators are having with similar operations in the area or, or, or in, that, in that part of the world. Uh, look, too, uh, at the economics in terms of viability. Uh, a project that has a, a four-year payout and uh, an internal rate of return uh, less than sort of 17% is probably not robust enough to make it. Uh, look for uh, returns on capital employed or internal rates of return above 25% with reasonable commodity prices. Uh, look to at payback periods less, hopefully substantially less than three years. Just, you know, employ some common sense. And then finally, look at the 
resumes of the people making the representation. Uh, what you want is somebody whose expertise you would value when asking those questions. If the CEO of the company, as an example, is a mining engineer who has put two mines in production in Quebec and Ontario and the Canadian Shield, and what he or she proposes to do is put a mine in production in Ontario and Quebec in the northern you know, Canadian Shield, you understand that their opinion as to the viability of a project is worth something. Uh, if, by contrast, the CEO is a, farm, is a former used car salesman, whose uh, prior success had been in cryptocurrencies or marijuana, uh, you need to consider whether or not you think that their expertise on the subject at hand is worth anything to you. Fairly common sense uh, items, but most people don't employ common sense because they don't do the work. You know, it's interesting, and, and thank you for all that. And what's interesting that you didn't say about things to look for is great. You know, if there's num if there's one thing that I heard quite a bit, you know, we have a high grade mine rate and great strike points and all that stuff. I mean, is that oh, uh, great? Great means a lot to me. Uh, it, it does. Okay, good. Okay. There's a there's a funny saying in the in the mine that says that tons cost and grade pays, which is to say a, a large low grade deposit has high upfront capital expense, has relatively high operating expense, but uh, has less pay per ton. On the other hand, um, scale matters too. Uh, too many times people come to me trying to finance small mines. Uh, what I've learned to my chagrin over 45 years in the business is that small mines have the same risk as big mines, except for they can only ever make you small money. And the idea that I would take big risk for small money is not my idea of a good time. So from my own personal point of view, uh, I want... Uh, to look at a mine project that has uh, in situ recoverable uh, reserves and resources, uh, at least in the sort of $2 billion range uh, over time. That's the equivalent of a million ounce gold deposit, perhaps. Things that are much smaller than that uh, appear to me to be return-free risk, which is to say that I have all the downside associated with the risk of mine construction development, but I don't have any upside. Uh, and I don't have the ability with the tons in the ground to overcome mistakes in time. So uh, I, I want scale and I want profitability. Absolutely. That was literally, I was just going to ask you about that too, is, you know, what is that ideal size when you're looking at these feasibility reports and they're saying, okay, we're looking to do this many hundreds of thousands of ounces this year, and then this many hundred thousand, you know, and then and then considering mine life. I mean, so your ideal is a minimum a million in resource, at least yeah. on the gold size. Yeah, I, I would like to see a million plus ounces in reserves and resource. And I would like to see annual production at or above a uh, hundred thousand ounces a year. Or, you know, extended to other commodities, I'd like to see the uh, present value of in situ reserves and resources at uh you know, uh, sort of $2 billion and above. And I'd like to see uh, projected mine sales in excess of 200 million US dollars a year. Absolutely. And Rick, so, I mean, what areas around the world have been most interesting right now? You know, what, what new mines, what new anything from what, from what you can tell us? Well, uh, I guess I'm awed in that regard. Um, 
we have talked in prior interviews, as an example, uh, about political risk. Uh, and I, am, uh, I have an odd view of political risk. Uh, I've had my worst experience with political risk in California, as an example. People that look like you and I somehow believe, in terms of political risk, that money that's stolen from us by white people in English, according to the rule of law in a legislature, is somehow less gone uh, than it is in Africa or Latin America or Asia. Uh, I don't hold to that point of view. So uh, I have been uh, reasonably successful in frontier and emerging markets locations that have been uh, less thoroughly explored, uh, where there is perhaps more sociological challenge around mine construction, uh, but where typically uh, the deposits that I see are of higher quality. I personally would rather take uh, political risk than take technical risk. So as an example, I've been uh, on record for 10 years as saying that I thought that uh, Ivanhoe mines the discovery and now construction in the Congo would more likely than not turn out to be a, a tremendous economic success. I remember being able to recommend that stock when it was selling at 63 Canadian cents a share and it had 90 cents a share in cash while being fronted by Robert Friedland, who is the most successful mine financier uh, of my generation. Uh, and well, it appeared to be one of the best copper deposits that's ever been discovered. That's the beauty of a hard country, Congo, in a terrible bear market. The ability to buy the best deposit in the world, fronted by the best financier in the world, at a discount to cash, is something that can only happen in a bear market. And of course, that's uh, on the way to having an extraordinarily happy ending. Uh, the mine is now operating at close to nameplate capacity. Uh, they are already in the process of planning for stage two and three <laughs> upgrades. Uh, I mean, a huge success. So that would have to stand out, uh, you know, obviously, obviously in my mind. Uh, I have a, a preference. While I said that my cutoff was uh, $2 billion in, in situ recoverable reserves and resources, my, my preference is tier one deposits, uh, world scale deposits. So, you know, while my cutoff would be $2 billion in in situ reserves and resources. My preference would be $10 billion in reserves and resources uh, in mines that are in the best quartile in the world in return on capital employed, uh, certainly above 25%, 25%, hopefully above 30%, uh, and also in the best quartile worldwide in terms of all in sustaining costs. I want a deposit that will be important enough that it could be bought by Rio Tinto or BHP or somebody like that and would make a difference to them. Uh, and we're, you know, we're starting to see discoveries like that. I would also say, and many of your listeners won't like this, but the investment performance exhibited by Russia in the last 10 years has been astonishing. Uh, among other things, those companies are owned by people, uh, which is to say there's usually one or two oligarchs in the front of them. And so they have adult supervision. And while certainly Russian capital markets are more opaque than I would prefer, and while the rule of law isn't as developed in Russia as it is in the United States, the quality of the lower level and middle management uh, uh, people 
is very, very, very high, the companies uniformly exhibit extraordinarily high quality deposits. And importantly, Russian companies uh, exhibit very good manners by paying out a substantial amount of free cash flow by way of dividends to their owners. <laughs> so I, I would tell most investors and speculators to check your prejudice at the door uh, and look at the reality associated with resource investment rather than merely what makes you feel comfortable. Gotcha. I mean, are you, I, 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 mean I know you look at everything. Um, but has, have you been looking at, th at one thing more or less, you know, and by that, I would say, you know, producers, near-term producers, explorers, uh, generator, project generators, royalties. I mean, wh market which market which leadership changes. Uh, and right. so I always look for whatever is most unpopular, uh, okay. which is to say, whatever is the cheapest. Uh, if you look back at the interviews I've done with you and your father going back over the last three or four years, you will find the theme that I hit the hardest was uranium. Uh, it turns out I was early on uranium, uh, two and a half years early on uranium, which was painful. Uh, now, uh, all of a sudden, uranium is the flavor of the month. Uh, what that means is that now that everybody's coming to me with uranium ideas, uh, or for uranium ideas, pardon me, I'm saying this is beginning to be the time that you cool your jets on uranium and look for something that's less popular. It's odd that nobody wanted to own uranium at $20 a pound, and everybody wants to own it at $42 a pound. Uh, it's odd that everybody wants to own, pardon me, nobody wants to own a uranium stock at 12 cents. But when that same stock is at a dollar, the fact that it's gone from 12 cents to a dollar, which is to say that the fact that it's no longer cheap makes everybody want to own it. Uh, so I've, I've been having the hardest time trying to wrap my head around uranium. That was going to be one of the topics today, too. Well, let's let's go into uranium a little bit because it's yeah. it's it's probably um, instructive for your audience. Yes. Uh, when I was banging the tub on uranium, it had several attributes which I loved. The first of which which was that it was roundly hated. Nobody wanted to own it, which meant it was cheap. And I really, really, really like cheap. The risk was, would it stay cheap? Uh, and the answer to that was profoundly no. Here's the reason. That despite the fact that uh, Joe Biden and Greta Thornburg uh, and uh, Justin Trudeau don't like uranium, everybody likes electricity. In the United States, which is a market that believes it's rich enough that it doesn't need uranium, 20% of baseload supply comes from uranium, and 13% of total electrical consumption comes from uranium. So despite the fact that the big thinkers don't like it, everybody wants the lights to go on when they come into a room. If you then assume that demand is ongoing, because it is, you begin to look at the arithmetic. Uh, a couple of years ago, the stuff was priced below $20 a pound. The International Energy Agency said the fully loaded cost, including cost of capital, to produce a pound of uranium was over $50 and probably over $60 a pound, which is to say the incentive price for new production was $60 a pound. That means you're making the stuff for $60 fully loaded and you're selling it for $20, losing $40 a pound. And of course, being dumb miners trying to make it up on volume. Either the price of uranium had to go up or the lights would go out. Those were the two choices. 
This was a question where the answer began with when, not if. It wasn't something that might occur. It was something that was going to occur. The question then became when. Nobody knew the answer, myself included. But I love commodities that are out of favor because they're cheap. And I love commodities that have to go up in price because if something has to go up in price, it will. It's a question of when, not if. It's odd to me that human behavior is the way it is. It would seem uh, that recency bias is a problem. Uh, if somebody hasn't been uh, reminded of the efficacy of a narrative because of price action, they aren't willing to uh, look at the narrative at all, which means, I guess, uh, from a behavioral investing point of view, people feel more comfort at $40 than they did at 20 What that means is that they've given up uh, <laughs> you know, 300% share price escalation, <laughs> or uh, if they confine themselves to the metal itself, a simple double. Well, I, let's let's zag a little bit on that. I mean, could have investors now thinking like thinking like how you are? Okay, if you can produce at sixty, and now you see the price starting to go up, then okay, now you're looking at some of these companies that might eventually be profitable as a result of now the price is going up and the demand is is coming up more too as well. You know, so you can is, always, is, that, is that a bad zag? I don't know. Yeah, you can always rationalize and justify. Uh, what's inexcusable, uh, I think, is not paying attention to a circumstance where you have no competitor and the price must go up. Right. When people ask me what to do now, I say it depends very much on who you are. Uh, if you were joining me three years ago, uh, and you own these stocks at a third of their current level, uh, I think you owe it to your balance sheet to sell enough that you take your own cash off the table. If you put 100,000 bucks in this stuff and it's worth 300, $350,000, take the 100 out, you know, yeah. uh, play with the house's money. If by contrast, you aren't in the sector at all, uh, and you have, a, if you actually have a two, three, four year time frame, uh, establish positions and tranche in. The fact is that the price of the stuff as we speak is 42 bucks. The incentive price of the stuff is 60 bucks. And there's always a lag time between the time the price rises and the time that the industry is able to supply more material uh, to meet that increase, uh, that price increase and the increase in demand. I mean, the fuel cycle itself from the point in time that you mine uranium to the point in time that you have usable fuel for a reactor can easily be, easily be 12 to 14 months. Uh, but if you go back beyond that, the time it takes to uh, even return a mothballed mine to production, uh, if it's an in situ uh, recovery mine, an ISR mine like in Kazakhstan, that's probably 12 months. Uh, but if it's a, 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 a hot shutdown mine like Cigar Lake or MacArthur River that Cameco has up in Canada, it's probably more like 30 months. So even once you get to the incentive price, the time it takes the industry to respond to the pricing signals uh, with mine restarts uh, and with the fuel cycle uh, is longer than people think. And if rather than that, you are trying to permit and finance and build a new mine, the time that takes is commonly 10 years. So when I say that the price has to go to 60, it's not unlikely that the price overshoots to 70 or 75 temporarily. There is certainly more room in the uranium price from 40 to 60 
uh, over the two to five year time frame, uh, I think is a certainty. I think it might go higher. And, and there is certainly upside in the stocks, but it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the stocks have the same sort of hiatus in their bull market that the gold and silver stocks have had over the last 12 months. And that unnerves investors. Absolutely. Damn, you just, um, that was another rabbit hole I want to go down to, uh, you know, on the, on the lag and uh, uh, equities prices as well. And when it comes to when you're looking at precious metals, but last point on uranium, you know, it's, it, a lot of folks that may not be as cued in as you or have been following this space for a long time, you know, they're following the narratives, right? When it comes to thinking about uranium and nuclear power and, oh, we're building nuclear power plants. I mean, can you dissuade, you pretty much just did, but maybe as a reminder, can, you, can we tell people that you don't just throw up a power plant uh, tomorrow, okay? Like, it, this is not, uh, it's not something that happens overnight. No, that's correct. As it relates to uranium, it's important to note that the plants that are being talked about now uh, were engineered 10 years ago, financed eight years from eight years ago, and they've been under construction for five years, uh, mostly in China, but also in Korea and the United Arab Emirates. In fact, it's important to note that more uranium is being consumed every year now than pre-Fukushima, which is to say, despite the fact that the whole Japanese nuclear fleet, the third largest fleet in the world, not the whole, but most of it is down, Consumption for uranium worldwide has increased. Uh, as the pace of Japanese restarts increases and we bring the Japanese nuclear fleet back online, that's going to do two things. It's going to take surplus inventories that the Japanese reactors had held for sale uh, because they weren't using it for fuel, and it's going to convert it to fuel inventory. So it is at once going to increase demand and reduce supply simultaneously. Will this happen you know, next month or the month after? No, but it doesn't need to. Remember that in 30 short days, uh, not coincidentally since the launch of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, uh, that the spot price of free uranium has moved from $30 a pound to $42 a pound. Uh, when the Japanese, and I think it really is a, a when, when the Japanese fleet restart begins in earnest, uh, then you're going to see further up, up, upside pressure on the uranium price. But that might not occur for 12 to 18 months. I don't know. Another one, one of the rabbit holes we brought, talked about earlier was the, the, the silver uh, trade, the silver short squeeze and some of the trading that's been happening, you know, on Reddit boards and everything like that. Um, I'm sure that I'd love to hear your perspective on it all. But even also in particular, not just silver, but probably the effect that this has had on battery metals. And maybe some of the companies that are in that space as well. So love. Let's go, start just, with let's start with go, silver. Rick. Yeah, it. let's let's start with silver, and then we'll move on to younger people and narrative investing. From there, uh, first of all, I've been hugely amused by Wall Street Silver uh, and the various silver sites around the silver squeeze. Uh, it, it, several things stand out. The first is that the way that information is consumed and distributed now is very different than when I was young. When I was your age, information came from on high. It came to you from the universities. It came to you from the media conglomerates, and it came to you from investment banks. None of those players necessarily had your best interests at heart. Uh, information is much more distributed now. There's 40,000 sources of light, yourself being one of them. And this distribution and democratization of narrative and information, I think, is hugely, is hugely a good thing. 
That isn't to say that there aren't preposterous sources of information on the, inter uh, on the internet, but there is all sorts of information available. The flow of information isn't constrained except by your willingness to work and go get it. And what that, in addition to cheap money, has meant is that the market is rife with speculation and rife with narrative. What I find useful uh, about this whole uh, Reddit phenomenon has been that a whole generation of young investors and speculators has been spawned. They will make mistakes. Uh, I started investing in my teens and early 20s. God knows I made mistakes. So, you know, a million or two of these people are going to get spankings, but that's okay. They're supposed to get spankings. That's how you learn. What's important is that they are uh, in the game. Uh, and in silver, I suspect at some point in time, some of them will move on from silver to some other narrative. But maybe a million, million and a half people have been introduced to silver. And some number of those people, when they study the silver market, not merely the imbalance on the COMEX, will learn why and how you invest in precious metals. Uh, which is to say, if you take a million and a half new speculators in silver, I suspect 500,000 of them become well-educated and stay in the precious metals trade, uh, which is important. The final thought I'll leave you with is that you haven't seen the real silver squeeze yet. Uh, I think you see the real silver squeeze occur over the three to five year time frame, as more and more people are drawn to precious metals investing. Many people do not know that the market share of precious metals and precious metals related investments relative to other investment and savings uh, categories in the United States market is less than one half of 1%, which is to say the aggregate value of precious metals and precious metals holdings among Americans is less than one half of 1% of the total investment and savings market in the United States. It's infinitesimal. What's really interesting to that is that the three decade mean market share was between one and a half and 2%. So if all of the factors that I believe uh, will, prop will propel precious metals prices higher, uh, it, it doesn't mean that precious metals need to go to disproportionate levels of market share like they enjoyed in 79, 80, and 81. If the market merely reverts to mean, demand for precious metals and precious metals securities in the United States market will triple. And that's precisely what I think is going to happen. I think the silver squeeze will occur not because of a short squeeze with some institutions, but simply a reversion to mean. But reversion to mean would see uh, demand for silver at least triple. And I think this is going to occur uh, not for narrative reasons, but for very real reasons. Um, precious metals tend to do well when savers and investors are nervous about the currency and nervous about the purchasing power of savings instruments in currencies like the US dollars. Do savers and investors have a reason to be concerned? I believe so. Let's look at three. The first is quantitative easing. Uh, if you did it, Robert, that would be called counterfeiting. But if Congress does it, 
Uh, it's called quantitative easing. And ironically, despite the fact that it depreciates the currency and robs people of the net present value of their savings, it's extremely popular. The second is debt and deficits. Uh, these debts need to be understand, understood by people of your age as a wealth transfer to old, wealthy people like me from younger people starting out like yourself. My generation, the generation right behind me, has devoted ourselves all kinds of really cool benefits and stuff, but we forgot to pay for it. We're leaving you the bill. I don't know how you feel about it, but I know how I'd feel about it if I were you. And that must make people, uh, by its very nature, nervous about things like U.S. treasuries because the credit quality of the issuer goes down. In arithmetic terms, Robert, uh, the numbers are stark. The on-balance sheet liabilities of the U.S. government now exceed $29 trillion. The off-balance sheet liabilities, which is Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, the Transportation Trust Fund, the Superfund Trust Fund, all those kinds of things, exceed $120 trillion. So we're about $150 trillion upside down at the federal level, before state and local debts and before unfunded pension plans. And we service this debt uh, with uh, a systemic deficit of $3 trillion a year probably $6 trillion this year. So people who aren't concerned need to ask themselves how you service $150 trillion in debt when you add to that debt by $3 trillion. Obviously, that goes to people's concern about the purchasing value of their savings. But finally, the worst of all is negative real interest rates. Uh, think about the concept of negative real interest rates. Think about the fact that if you postpone consumption, and you lend the money to somebody so they can consume now, you have to pay them to do it. How does that make sense? How do you assume the credit risk and forego consumption and pay somebody to be the other side of the trade? Uh, negative real interest rates, I think, become the straw that breaks the camel's back with regards to other savings and investment products. Will this take place right away? Of course not. People don't want to think about the negative. People have experienced 40 years of the most benign economic uh, you know, climate in the history of mankind, so people are comfortable. But when the arithmetic begins to come home to roost, when people see the impact of inflation at the gas pump on the grocery shelf, uh, in home buying, in renting, in car prices, and they see that prices are escalating 5% a year, while their savings account is generating 40 basis points, and while their U.S. 10-year treasuries are generating 120 basis points, all of a sudden, the narrative around precious metals uh, becomes much more apparent. And I'm not saying that the treasury market's going to collapse, that the equity market's going to go to zero, that gold is going to go to $20,000 an ounce. I'm not saying any of that stuff. All I'm saying is that we will experience at least, at least, a reversion to mean, meaning that the market share of precious metals will go back above one and a half percent, which is to say that demand for these products will triple. So on that front, and by the way, thank you for that breakdown. That was that was incredible as always. Um, but you know, a lot of people now are saying, uh, "Look, uh, gold is a thing of the past." You know, now we have to 
we we want to preserve our cash. We got to go into crypto and Bitcoin. I'm gonna leave that that grenade right there for you, mm-hmm. and then and and now and go with it. Well, a couple things. I I think that crypto and precious metals are uh, at worst symbiotic assets. Understand that the market share of both combined to global economic activity uh, are negligible. Uh, the market capitalization of Bitcoin is somewhere around a trillion dollars in a universe of savings and investment products worldwide at $550 trillion. Uh, I I think that crypto and gold might compete around the edges, around the fringes of speculation, but you don't see the Russian central bank. You don't see the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund. You don't see Mubadla. You don't see the world's real investors care about crypto at all. They see it as a floating abstraction or as a medium of exchange. Uh, if demand for crypto was to double and take the market share to $2 billion, the $2 trillion, pardon me, in a $550 trillion universe, would anybody uh, other than, you know, uh, perhaps a young person on their cell phone, care? I don't believe so. Uh, I don't believe so at all. What's interesting to me uh, about the impact of crypto on precious metals markets is, again, you have a whole group of young people who are attracted to an asset class because they don't trust the political and financial establishment. And my the suspicion is that that narrative, if that narrative becomes apparent to 10 million people, uh, will ultimately lead to a quarter or a half of them uh, becoming precious metals investors and precious metal speculators, simply because of the skepticism that they've learned around the crypto narrative. I'm not critical of cryptos, by the way. Uh, I've invested a reasonable bit myself in blockchain and distributed ledger technologies. What I notice about cryptocurrencies is that they become less currencies than they have been trading vehicles. The frictionless nature of crypto and the fact that you don't have to trust anybody because the enforcement mechanism is with the community rather than with the courts is very attractive to me. But the volatility that you see in crypto pricing means that their utility as money, their utility as a medium of exchange is very low. If you go to buy a sack of groceries uh, with a fractional Bitcoin, you don't actually know how much you paid for the groceries. And the grocer doesn't know how much he or she received. And you have no idea what the impact of the payment will be two weeks from now, nor does your grocer. So the very volatility that attracts traders um, makes it less attractive in terms of the utility that was offered up uh, that caused the interest to begin with. Well, going back to narrative investing, when and you say, you know, you would think that those who are invested in crypto or at least some precious metals, or specifically even just let's say gold, you know, that, or sorry, we're talking about Bitcoin first, 
like you would think some of those flows might go to precious metals at a certain point. But I mean, I know from, uh, from talking to folks in my generation, you know, when they think about precious metals, of course, it, there's the ESG idea behind it. Right. And I mean, it's, that's not to say that crypto hasn't come under wind right. for their own issues. Don't get me wrong. Um, but that's been, that's been kind of an interesting narrative that I feel like is potentially, and I, and I, I, I could be a hundred percent wrong, but that might've been held holding up maybe some of that reversion to the mean, as you've talked about. Uh, I think the, uh, uh, what we're ignoring there is time frame. Uh, I, I remember myself, frankly, in my twenties, uh, I thought a year, uh, was a horrifically long time. Uh, it's odd that at age 68, when I have much less time on earth, I've become much more patient. Uh, and I think now in terms of five and six year timeframes, uh, not because uh, I, I hope it's true, but merely because it is true. Um, what happens in the short term is interesting, but not particularly relevant. Uh, what happens over the long term, which is to say re mean reversion, is how you make money. And while I think it's unlikely that in 2021 and 2022 that there is widespread adoption among younger investors to precious metals, if you give me till 2026 and 2027, my suspicion is that your generation will be raving mau maus around precious metals. Will it happen by the next long weekend? No, of course not. But will it happen at a time that rewards even a 68-year-old speculator like myself? Almost certainly. All right, Rick, before I let you go, and, and again, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, do this interview with me. Um, is there anything I've missed? I mean, is there anything that, you know, listeners of, of Planet Microcap or anybody that consumes literally everything that you do that's going to come back at us and be like, just give me hell because I didn't ask you about it? So I, what, I, are I, we missing anything? Well, a couple messages. Um, okay. Use common sense, first of all. If something seems too good to be true, that's because it is. Uh, understand that investing and everything else in your life takes time. <laughs> you want something to happen quickly, uh, but God, if there is one, uh, and the universe doesn't particularly care about your time frames. You need to adjust your time frames to what's real, not what you want. With regards to resources, they're capital intensive and cyclical. Uh, which means that you are either a contrarian, you either become a contrarian, or you are going to be a victim. You have to find stuff that's out of favor, not hot, not fashionable. Uh, you need to anticipate. Uh, and if you learn to anticipate, if you develop the right mindset, you are going to be early. That's the way it's going to be work. So you're going to have to be patient and tenacious too. Finally, uh, I'll try and make it easy for people. I love to engage with listeners uh, of all ages, and I provide an incentive to do that. Any of your listeners who go to a website, sprottusa.com forward slash rankings, you can enter your natural resource portfolio in the website, web form there. Please, no pot stocks, no tech stocks, no crypto, just stuff that I understand. I'll rank your stocks, no obligation, one to 10, one being best, 10 being worst. I'll comment on those issues where I think my comments might have value. And in addition, for those who care, if you mention charts in the comment line, I'll send out a 60-year Barron's Gold Mining Index chart, which is the best visual representation of precious metals, bull and bear markets that I know. I'm not a technical analyst. I use it as a visual tool. 
And I'll include too a hundred year commodity chart, which will demonstrate how cheap physical commodities are relative to other asset classes going back in a hundred, going back a hundred years in financial markets histories. That's rankings at Sprott US, pardon me, that's not true. It's SprottUSA.com forward slash rankings. Okay. My last question before you go, as you said, you were on my, on my show talking with me, talking with my father, saying, you know, flying the uranium flag earlier than everyone. What's your, what's your uranium right now? I don't have anything that has to go up like uranium. Mm-hmm. I would say that the best opportunity in terms of timeliness in front of me uh, are the precious metals equities. Uh, we're in a lag. They've lost favor. But the reason that the bull market started is very much intact. Uh, I don't think that crypto itself is the challenge for gold. I think the S&P 500 is the challenge for gold. And I think the S&P 500, looking down 10 or 15 years, uh, will more than hold its own against gold. But my suspicion is that we're going to see reversion to mean. Uh, The gold producers, in particular the mid-cap gold producers, on a net present value to enterprise value are as cheap as they've been in my career. Uh, I think they will revalue based on today's gold price. And I think today's gold and silver prices will go higher too. For younger people who have enough time to recover from a mistake and are interested in speculation, my experience has been in the second half of a precious metals bull market, which I think we're approaching, that silver outperforms gold. Uh, It's a much more speculative metal, so you need to be willing to take some risks to play this. But in my experience, the latter half of a bull market is is, uh, marked by silver moving further and faster than gold. And simple arithmetic tells you that the population of decent quality silver stocks is extremely small. Our mutual friend, Doug Casey, says, observes that when the... uh, generalist money moves into the precious metals market by the time they hit the silver stocks, that there isn't enough market cap to contain them. Uh, And that the result is, quote, like trying to siphon Hoover Dam through a garden hose, which is to say that those market capitalizations absolutely blow up. Is that going to happen? No guarantee. It's happened twice before in my career. And I'm willing to invest some time and some treasure and some patience Uh, in hopes that it happens again, personally. Well, Rick, with that, where can our audience go and find more information to follow you, your insights, and uh, just, you know, so they can hear more? The easiest way to find me right now is just go on YouTube uh, and and, uh, enter Rick Rule 2021. I'm a fairly prolific uh, contributor to various podcasts. Uh, I have my own channel, ruleinvestmentmedia.com. Uh, But the easiest way to find out what's specifically of use to your readers is what I think about their portfolios. And I'm willing to individually rank those portfolios, as I say, SprottUSA.com forward slash rankings. That's probably, uh, how would you say, the most meaningful (laughs) viewpoint that your listeners could get from me because it relates to them particularly. Very good. Well, Rick, with that, thank you so much for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure. I always enjoy our catch-ups and uh, I look forward to our next, uh, the next opportunity for us to chat. The pleasure was mine. Say hi to your folks for me. Will do. Talk to you soon. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast.